1: This week on Not Sam Wrestling, Evan Hunsey and Jason Eisner from Dark Side of the Ring are here to talk about Abdullah the Butcher, Bruiser Brody, the Montreal Screwjob, and more. I'll tell you what I was doing in Montreal this week. There's a lot to break down. Superstar Shake-Up Week this week on Not Sam Wrestling.
0: This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host, From New York, here is Sam Roberts.
1: Back on time, back at it again. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. And what a week it's been. Back in the Not Sam studio. We were a couple days late last week. Again, I apologize, but... I'll tell you what was going on. I told you I was going to tell you what was going on. I'll tell you what was going on. So for those that don't know, I am... uh, a guest commentator this week on WWE main event. And, you know, I'm going to post something on social media, but of all the sort of uh, surreal, full circle moments that have happened, you know, over the past few years, I guess, whether it's, you know, on my radio show on SiriusXM, whether it's here on the podcast, whether it's the stuff I've been doing with WWE, to be sitting at that commentary booth, at that broadcast booth next to Byron Saxton and Renee Young and doing commentary... For WWE is about as nuts as it gets. So I mean, I had an absolute blast. By the time you hear this, it should be available on Hulu. I guess you know it'll be available on the WWE Network in a few weeks. I think, but I was uh, WWE invited me to be a guest uh, for for the one episode of WWE main event, and and it was awesome. You know, I uh, I did so last week. The reason I was late with the podcast is because. Um, I was in uh, Orlando uh, for, I mean, an afternoon, just kind of uh, learning a couple tricks of the trade from some of the professionals at WWE before I headed to Montreal, you know, because I, I can't, it's, it's very different from doing the kickoff show commentary. But uh, I was able to pick up some tips, get back to New York, lay down this podcast, and then on Sunday night, head to Montreal where... Uh, I got to sit there and do commentary for main event. And it was pretty amazing, just being part of the whole process. You know, you go out right around 7.30. Raw is about to start at 8, but 7.30, you go out there, jump into the booth, boom, 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 all the, the, the people in the arena are already there. You're sitting down, and it's go, go, go. You have about maybe 30 to 60 seconds from the time you sit down until that main event music kicks Byron Saxton is able to take over right away. Boom, boom, boom. First entrance comes out. Here comes a camera right in your face. It's time to introduce yourselves to the world. Incredible. Couple of matches. Here's what's going on there. Here's what's going on here. And I was there to simply give my opinion. I was there to just, they said, you know, I don't know anything about any sports. I'm not there to call moves or do anything like that. But I was there to, they said, you know, you give your opinion on the kickoff show. Let's hear you give your opinion on main event. Could be fun. And everybody did. I think I had a blast doing it. Um, I would love to do more because it's one of those things where, you know, you go in for your first time and you go, man, that was fun. I wish I could do it more, not only because doing more fun things is even more fun, but it takes some time to get comfortable in that booth. It's a difficult thing to do, but I mean, difficult in the best possible way. So I'm so psyched. That it all went down. And then immediately after main event, you go, you stand up, you get out of there. Time to transfer over. Here comes Michael Cole. Here comes Corey Graves. See you later, Renee. Backstage, superstar shakeups happening. I mean, to watch the moving parts of an episode of Monday Night Raw, specifically like the superstar shakeup, is unbelievable. It's like nothing else in sports, nothing else in entertainment. It is crazy that the WWE is able to pull this off week in, week out, and it it never ceases to blow my mind, especially everybody working behind the scenes. It is, you know, you hear things described as a well-oiled machine. It's a a machine oiled as well the way no other machine is oiled. It's incredible. But speaking of Montreal and the fun time uh, that I had there, I couldn't help but think About the fact that Montreal is the spot where one of the most famous, uh, I'll say, betrayals in wrestling history happened. That, of course, it's called the Montreal Screwjob Survivor Series 1997. Bret Hart is getting ready to go to WCW. He's instructed to drop the title to Shawn Michaels. He doesn't feel comfortable dropping the title to Shawn Michaels in Montreal. Won't do it. Uh, Brett and Vince McMahon work together to try to figure out uh, alternatives to what Brett could do. Brett doesn't want to do it. Vince McMahon agrees to a some kind of a schmoz ending. Then at the last minute, without Brett's knowledge, Brett gets put in the sharpshooter. The bell is rung. And Shawn Michaels is announced as the new WWE champion. Like nothing that had happened before in any sort of recent history. There are other examples of betrayals happening. But in terms of doing it on, on WWE pay-per-view in 1997 in the Attitude Era, it's just nothing like it had happened. Uh, Vice, Land, Vice's cable channel, Viceland, has a series out called Dark Side of the Ring. And it's done by a couple guys. Uh, Evan Hunsey is the producer Jake Eisner is the director. Uh, I got the chance to see a bunch of the episodes, including the episode that aired this week on the Montreal screw job. And I really like it. It's not its not perfect. You know, and there are people that have criticisms. You know, uh, there were people who had criticisms over the Macho Man episode. I really got locked into the series with the Bruiser Brody episode. Um, you know, I, I'm not one to judge if something is historically accurate when it comes to behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, if I watch a documentary and they go, this happened at Survivor Series and it happened at SummerSlam, I know. Okay, wrestling history, I know. But the behind-the-scenes stuff, I wasn't there for it. So all I do is read the rumors and whatnot. There are people who have criticized this episode uh, of Viceland's uh, Dark Side of the Ring about the Montreal screw job. I watched it, and to me, I was entertained. I didn't feel uh, railroaded by the whole thing. I don't know. I don't know, but... I would recommend that you watch it and form your own opinions. They talk to a bunch of people. They talk to Earl Hebner, they talk to Scott Hall, they talk to Vince Russo, they talk to Jim Cornette, they talk to Bret Hart. It really is, I mean, I just think it's cool to see wrestling documentaries that have had this much work put into them. Right? These are not half-assed shows. Wrestling documentaries that have had this much work put into them be shown on a on a mainstream level the way they're shown On So I got the chance to talk to the producer and the director of Dark Side of the Ring about the Montreal Screwjob, about Abdullah the Butcher, and Bruiser Brody, and all the other shows that they've done, and I wanted to share that conversation with you. So this week, on the podcast, from Dark Side of the Ring, director Jason Eisner, producer Evan Huntsie are here. Let's get to it.
0: The Not Sam Wrestling Interview Today
1: on the podcast, very, I think, a a very special appearance. You know, we were talking earlier about uh, Montreal. Raw was in Montreal. Smackdown was in Montreal this week. Um, And I thought two guys that would be good to talk about uh, Montreal as well as several other controversies are the producer and the director of a pretty amazing documentary series that's on Viceland right now. A lot of wrestling fans are talking about it, so hopefully you guys have already seen some of it. It's called Dark Side of the Ring, uh, and with me here on the show is Evan Hunsey, who's the producer, Jason Eisner, who's the director. What's going on, guys? What's the haps? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'll tell you, um, Evan reached out to me about the project uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't heard about it until you reached out, Evan, and... To tell you the truth, like when you kind of explained what it was and what the title was, I was a little hesitant about it because the last thing that I kind of want for wrestling and that as a wrestling fan that I want to see at this point in my life is another one of these movies or series or whatever about how, you know, wrestling is so evil and everybody dies young and it's terrible for everybody. So I was like kind of worried that it was going to be one of those hatchet jobs from a fan perspective that. You know, they say, well, it's just wrestling fans talking about it. And it's like, no, you're being, you know, extraordinarily negative about something that's done a (laughs) lot of good for a lot of people. But then I watched it, luckily. And what you do is you take kind of, I don't want to say an urban myth, but you take a story that happened inside the world of wrestling and you spend about an hour breaking it down. It's not about, you know, how evil wrestling in general is it's just a really i think of the ones that i've seen well done uh telling of some of these stories that are darker but just stories that aren't told like for me i think my favorite one that i've seen so far is the bruiser brody documentary where you guys go into everything that happened bruiser brody getting killed in puerto rico and what the buildup was to it and uh, why he was there and what people thought was going to happen and why it just kind of floated away with nobody ever getting kind of uh, held to the coals for it or anything like that. And I was like, okay, this is actually, this is actually right up my alley. Um, And this week you guys did something that I think is actually, I don't know if risky is the right word, um, but challenging, I think is the right word Uh, when I go, okay, so the bruiser Brody, to, to tell the story of Bruiser Brody, even though the story's been told a hundred times, I still feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, as filmmakers, that one's probably a little bit easier only because the mainstream haven't necessarily all heard the Bruiser Brody story. That that story, I don't right. think I've seen, has been told as excessively as this documentary did. And the same thing for the Von Erich story. And the same thing for a few of the episodes. But when I found out that you guys were doing... The Montreal screw job, I went, okay, now this is a story that's been told every way since Sunday. I, I feel like every angle has been exhausted. So when I heard you guys were doing it, I said, okay, I'm interested in the <laughs> challenge. Uh, how did you guys tackle a story that, unlike a lot of the other stories you're telling, has been told over and over again?
2: Well, yeah, so. <clears throat> When we wanted to do the show in the first place, when we were when we were putting it together, we really wanted to engineer it to be something that uh, non wrestling fans could really be swept up into. And um, part like one of the key themes that's present in all of the episodes of the show is this sort of convergence of you know real life and the sort of scripted world, if you will, of of, of wrestling and 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 the montreal screw job really seems to be like the lightning rod of that that's the moment kind of when the curtain was pulled back the fourth wall was broken and it's such a important part in wrestling history and you know when we put the show together it's like so many we wanted it to be accessible to so many people who've never heard of the story before and have and 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 that was and that's what we really tried to do with this episode is is kind of give like a Crash course on it, but also try and find some information that hasn't been out there before.
3: Yeah. And we're like, we're very passionate fans. And we wanted this in some ways to kind of be like a gift to other wrestling fans so that they could show it to their like friends and family. And hopefully that they could like get a better understanding as to like why we are all like so passionate about this business. And those have been for, I think for us, some of like the best compliments when we hear that like, um, like viewers have been showing it to their family and they say like, oh, my family member wasn't a wrestling fan and they watched this and now they're like addicted to it and they can't wait to watch the next one. Like that's like the best compliment.
2: Exactly. So as far as like the screw job as an episode, um, it's just, it's so important in the, in the story that is wrestling. And um, so the way we approached it was literally involving all of the saga and like story and lore and mythology <laughs> around it. Like, for example, uh, the Bret Hart Wrestling with Shadows documentary, which was chronicling that as it was happening, is also part of our story, because it is part of the story. So it is it is kind of like a 22 years, I think, 22 years yeah later um, examination of it. And there is a little bit, and, and for all the hardcore fans, people have heard it to death, there is a new bit of information there,
1: which is pretty key to the puzzle that's never been out before. So a couple of things there. First of all, I mean, I think you guys are right on the money in what you were going for because as soon as I started watching any of the docs in the series, really, I realized like, oh, this is something that I could actually turn on and watch with my wife. I mean, she's so sick of wrestling being on all the time. She couldn't possibly care less. But I go, this is because the emphasis is on the story. And it's not so – it's just these are I, – and I think every episode has been that way. It's just the fascinating stories – that take place inside the business that really, unless you are deeply rooted as a fan, you probably don't understand. So I think you guys are super successful in uh, making these stories accessible in that way. Uh, I got the, the, the wrestling with shadows thing. And I'm glad that you guys included it because to me, one of the things that I like about several of the docs in this series is that you get a whole bunch of different angles. You get, several different perspectives of people who I think this is what happened and here's why I think that's what happened. And here's why you don't, you kind of try to do a documentary in the truest form, which is not giving the answer as opposed to just you documenting what happened. And then the, the viewers at home can give the answer. But I feel like it stuck out to me, like having Scott Hall on the show (laughs) and still I blew my mind that still now Scott Hall thinks the whole thing was a work, but I feel like the fact that they were doing Wrestling with Shadows in that period of time and they got so much backstage footage that literally nobody has ever gotten in the world of wrestling, and they happened to get it as this, the most sensational backstage story of the modern era was happening. Uh, I feel like the Wrestling with Shadows documentary has actually added to the mythology that Scott Hall put forward that the whole thing was a work.
2: Well, there's an interesting story about Scott Hall's, uh, the genesis of putting Scott Hall on this episode, <clears throat> which is just basically I had lunch with him one time. And I was like, yeah, so we're doing an episode on the Montreal screw job And he's like, total work. <laughs> you know, and I was like, <laughs> and, and, and I was like really, no, really? And, yeah, which is
3: so crazy because he's like, you know, such good friends with Sean uh, Michaels. You know, they've been colleagues for so many years. Yeah. think, you know, if, if anybody's close to it, it would be him. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah and 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 so the meta the, the the whole metaness of all of this is like I've seen some people who who are, you know are gearing up to watch this episode which is premiering this week is that like well why is Scott Hall in it you know blah 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 and it's like well you have to convey to to people that there is a side of this story where people believe this thing is a work and actually on Twitter we posted you know kind of like what do you think and we were surprised at how it's kind of almost 50-50. Yeah, still to this day. <laughs>
3: well, like, yeah.
1: my whole thing is that I could understand believing in that theory when it first happened, and even for a year or so after it happened. But when you yeah. look back on it, while WWE benefit in the long run, if you piece the story together in a certain narrative – you could definitely make the argument that WWE benefited tremendously from it. I mean, I think the popular narrative is that the Mr. McMahon character, which ended up being the hottest bad guy character in wrestling, stemmed from this incident. Now, I don't think that that was on purpose. I think it just kind of happened. Yep. But realistically, sending Bret Hart to WCW did nothing for anybody. You nope. could you could easily make the argument that... that this was the end of Bret Hart's career. You know, nothing after this incident was good for Bret Hart in wrestling. So I don't understand from all points of view why on the Bret Hart side, he would have agreed to this work. And since it didn't work out for him, why he wouldn't have said something within the last 20 years.
2: Well, it's 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 kind of amazing to like fantasize about the idea of like a work to the grave, you yeah. know, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> like... There's nothing cooler than that, I yeah. think, you know, and so like, you know, because we've we've heard stories about, you know, when you rib someone to the grave, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but like so that, you know, in theory is is, is incredible. But I, we know firsthand from being, you know, with spending time with Brett and, and literally hearing him talk about this story for so long. I mean, sometimes when in some of the other interviews, which we can talk about that we've done on the other episodes like you know when someone's kind of working you a little bit you yeah. know and in this i didn't get that i i just got you know bitterness and you yeah. know yeah and Brett's story has literally
3: been the same like all these years yeah. much. like it's never it's never changed
1: yeah yeah i think that uh adding Vince Russo to the mix uh <laughs> i think it was a, i think it was strong for you guys to do that you know i think that the prevailing theory, you know, Vince Russo gets left out of a lot of this stuff because his reputation is what his reputation is. But realistically, if you're doing a documentary and you've got Cornette and you've got Hepner and you've got Hart, it, you know, whether you believe him or trust him or whatever it is, you've got enough counterpoints of view represented in the thing. Why not throw Vince Russo in there?
3: Yeah, well, it was it wasn't originally in the cards to have him uh, involved with the episode. We were actually interviewing him for another episode of the show, um, and he basically demanded that he be part of this
2: episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, you know, because I think we left it in there where he's like, uh, I wasn't slated for this documentary, <laughs> yes. but. And so I was there, so I have to like, <laughs> talk which, about it, which is great. So that's like a real like he literally like like the documentary, like it puts the we like put the brakes on for Russo to, to do a run in. But <laughs>
1: that's what it felt like. It felt like an old school run in where Russo just <laughs> yeah. takes the thing over. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the episode, it kind of drifts away from Bret Hart's story to. Did you guys know how much Jim Cornette and Vince Russo hate each other? <laughs> and, and there it yeah. is.
2: Yeah, that was also, uh, I mean, that's also entertaining, you know, as well. But for us, like, I guess, like, the one of the reasons why we did that is it is it is fascinating when at, at the core of this story, you have this bitter this bitter rivalry between Brett and Sean, like, two people who hate each other. They can't get along. But then if you peel the layers back of the onion, like, here you have, you know, Cornette and Russo who also hate each other, and that just proved to be you know, one of the more fascinating, like, aspects of the story.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, you know,
2: ego egos are colliding still to this day <laughs> yeah. over the
3: story. Yeah,
1: that you would think that the contention lies between the main parties involved, whether it's Bret Hart and Vince McMahon or Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, not realizing no, nope. that there nope. is so much just bubbling under the surface between two guys who were writing the show at the time.
2: Yeah, and one of the more fascinating aspects in that sequence between Cornette and Russo that's that's so weird to me because I think this is totally singular in the wrestling business is where you have two guys who are arguing over taking credit for something that they wish they didn't <laughs> take credit for. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which yeah. to us is like
1: amazing. You know? Yeah, you wouldn't get that in any other art form. <laughs> no. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, yeah. As, as the filmmakers, do you sit there and – After you're done or after you do the interviews, do you try to figure out like, okay, here's who I believe, or do you sit there and go, I just want to make a great product and, you know, this, let's just, this is the story. There's a hundred versions of it. Let's just put it out there.
2: I think it's a mixture of a little bit of both, but it's definitely, we get swept up into this. Definitely. I mean, we lived and breathed and slept, you know, we, all of this was, we like lived it for a couple of years. So every time we would interview or talk to somebody else and some new bit of information would come out or we would get worked you know or something, <laughs> we were always dissecting that you know oh yeah
3: on the uh, on like the drive like back from like interviewing them we yeah. were, like, okay what was the work like, yeah. or we were just like exhausted from being worked so hard like, <laughs> for example like when we hung out with abdul the butcher for uh-huh. a
1: day and a half like yeah we were just work so much so couldn't worked. Get work anymore yeah. was, was, was that was that the one or were there any interviews or moments where you come off of it and you think you have this gem and mm-hmm. then either somebody tells you it's completely false or you just sit with it for a day and a half and go oh wait a minute i was swept up that that's that's not even possible that's a complete fabrication
3: i think there are i think you'll see um for one example like in the fabulous Mula episode we interviewed wendy richter
1: mm-hmm. and oh, there was yeah, definitely
3: exactly. like some moments in there where we're like oh man i think i think we just got i think we got work like we didn't know we got work <laughs> in the moment but then maybe it was in the
2: editing room we're like oh gosh we're getting worked <laughs> <laughs> we're getting worked in the here. um yeah and, and that's a fascinating thing you just brought up jason is like uh the uh, Mont- like the Montreal screw job, obviously, but a lot of people point back to the yeah. the uh, Wendy Richter story as kind of one of the one of the early, early. more modern screw jobs yeah and um, and and that to us there was a detail in the edit room where we realized we got worked, which was when she c- claims that she didn't know the fabulous mula was under that mask and I'm, and we're just thinking, how is that possible? Yeah is she protecting the business still because we found that a lot. I yeah, with a lot of the people from that generation that we were interviewing, especially Abdullah. You know, shout out to Abdullah. You yeah. know, he definitely yeah. was <laughs> working us, but like you know, like still protecting the business, and so and that's when we realized, well, wait a minute, how could you not know? You know, and so that was kind of a fascinating yeah. moment. But we still like we admire being worked too. We do. We love yeah. it. Yeah, sure, we love it. we're just like this is great because it is like at being a fan. You know, we have the responsibility of kind of balancing being big time fans, but also being filmmakers slash journalists, I guess you could
1: say with this show. So,
2: you know, we also, you know, have some responsibilities in that regard. too. Yeah.
1: Well, it's really funny, especially with the Abdullah stuff, because you're going, okay, like you're speaking in your normal speaking voice. So you're already completely breaking character. When you get that high pitch, like Southern accent, it, clearly not Abdullah the butcher. It, you're just a guy now. So you would think that once you break that wall, Okay, now we're out of character, but for some reason, he's okay revealing that part. But still, these other elements—he's—he's he's got the. I think all the old school guys and women have this invisible line that it's different mm-hmm. for everybody of when it's okay to kind of draw back the curtain and what there. But then there's a second curtain that you didn't even know about that mm-hmm. they still keep other stuff behind that one. Totally
2: for for Abdul the butcher specifically. You know, when we when we took him to uh, Red Lobster the day before, <laughs> um, you know, he was he was, you know, he was from, you know, the Abdul the Butcher from the Sudan, you know, at, at this meal we were having. And then when we sat down and did the interview the next day with him, you know, same kind of thing where I felt like we were talking to the character. You know, we were doing yeah. a promo. Uh-huh. And so and it's, it's really hard to convey to him like what we're looking for. And like the whole eureka moment of getting Abdullah the butcher to kind of crack, so to speak, was the moment when we played him footage of Bruiser Brody, uh, and we played like these video, these old videos he probably hasn't seen 25, 30 years, of the matches they had, and then that's what cracked the facade, and yeah. then he then he teared up. You'll see it in the episode, and then he started to kind of be, you know, taking us a little bit more seriously. I think from that yeah. point. on.
1: You know that makes a lot of sense because as you watch the the Brody episode. I felt like uh, Tony Atlas did a pretty tremendous job of really helping narrate that story from a first-person perspective, and I kind of expected there to be a lot more Abdullah stuff, a lot more stories from Abdullah, but the fact that it took forever just to get him out of character is probably why you didn't have (laughs) more kind of footage of him just being himself and talking about Bruiser Brody.
3: Yeah, like... Gosh, like, as crazy as it was and how much we worked, I would have loved to have spent, like, a few more days with Abdullah <laughs> because, like, people forget, like, he, like, wrestled in the 50s. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, he has been in it so long, and I imagine just has, like, so many incredible stories. Um But, like, we heard even, like, from Bret Hart, like, how... um Like, when Brett was a kid, he saw a match between his father, Hart and Abdullah. Mm -hmm. And he was terrified, and he saw, like, Abdullah was biting onto Hart's face. Mm -hmm. And so he ran up, and he kicked Abdullah in the ass, and Abdullah (laughs) turned around with Stu's blood all over his mouth and just growled at Brett. And we were like, Brett, like, where did you think Abdullah was from then? He was like, honestly, like, I thought they brought him in. From like the darkest part, like parts of Africa, not knowing that he's also a Canadian like, <laughs> from the suburbs of Windsor, Ontario. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But I love, I love, like I, we also like are obsessed with the idea of like that time period when wrestlers kept their families in the dark about the business. Yeah, you know that their families were watching these matches, thinking that you know, everything that was happening was, like, really... Was like, real. Happening yeah, it was a dangerous.
2: documentary before their very eyes. Mm-hmm. And the best example of that, uh, which kind of even still answers your question, um, which is for the Moolah episode, we interviewed Princess Victoria, who, um, you know, was a pioneering women wrest- or female wrestler... in the, From Vancouver. Yeah. If Portland.
3: you don't know her after you see the episode, you're going to love her. Yeah. She's, well, like, one of and, our favorite people and, to interview. And I'll
1: tell you, you should, that this is already... Taking off because I literally I saw a, an ad. She's doing conventions again, and oh, I great. I saw this picture of her and I was like, where do I know her from? And I had just watched the moolah episode, uh, and I went, that's yeah. that's what it is. But that's go on. So cool.
2: She was the most unexpected, uh, like just a, what a surprise she was. Like when we arrived at her at her home and did this interview with her, just how amazing she is, her stories are, and and what she's lived through and been through is oh, just insane. You yeah. could do a movie about her. And she told us this story that I think is is just so wild to think yeah, I about. I love it, yeah. And it's by one of my favorite road stories that we have, I guess you could say, um, that we unfortunately couldn't find room for in the episode itself, but we will release as its own thing because it's that crazy. Um, but basically there was an intergender match that she was in, in like the late (laughs) seventies or the early eighties, which is crazy that that happened then. Yeah. It was like an eight man Mm -hmm. battle royale. It was an eight man battle royale. She was the only woman and it came down to her and, uh, Buddy Rose and the whole angle they were working at the time was, you know, Buddy Rose was the heel and he's saying, you know, how women don't, aren't, don't belong in, in wrestling. And she's like, you know, I can do anything a man can and better. And that was the whole angle going into it. And there's a spot in the match where Buddy Rose takes Princess Victoria and slams her head into a brick wall. And she falls to the floor and everyone in the audience is like gasps. And then she she stands up and her face is just, you know, she's covered in blood. She's got the crimson mask, you know, and everyone's just like, oh, my God, you know. And then all of a sudden her brother is in the audience and he is like, oh, my God, someone's trying to kill my sister. And so he runs over the guardrail, gets right in front of Buddy Rose's face and is like, you take your hands off my sister. And then like the security guards, you know, like tackle him and, you know, get him out of the arena. And then she goes to the back after the match and every, all the boys in the in, in, in the locker room are just like, who was that guy? Who was that? And she's like, that was my brother. And they <laughs> thought it was the coolest thing that she didn't smarten up her family, Yeah, you know, to this whole business. And did, like, the blade job or whatever.
3: Yeah, and she still didn't smarten him up. She was like, listen, this is, like, what I do for a living. And you, like, you can't do that. Yeah, you, you know? can never interrupt me in a match. This is what I do. And then also, like, when we asked her, we were like, so, like, to, to like, Juice, did you, like, gimmick yourself? And she, like, paused and she was like... She looked at what? us
2: horrified, like... <gasps> she was
3: like, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's awesome. Like, I, and she was like, I can't physically, like tell you how i did like I, I just like can't. i want to but i just i can't within me like do it she just physically couldn't do it yeah and that was like
2: such a it um, felt like dave schultz was going to materialize and slap the shit out of
1: both of us yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Your, your eardrums popped out yeah. <laughs> yeah so like on that note i guess you know you guys are obviously such huge fans but you're also trying to get something done trying to get you know it is a pretty big undertaking how much discipline does it take as filmmakers to go like, no, we can't just spend three weeks with Abdullah the Butcher asking him every question we were ever curious about. We actually have to stick to topic here and try to get something for the film, not just yeah. something that's like, when are we ever gonna have this moment again? Let's just ask everything we ever wanted to know.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was it was tough <clears throat> to fit everything in. Sometimes just one day, and sometimes you know you'd interview someone like Kevin Von Erich for yeah. his episode, which was spread up apart over a couple of different you know a couple of different days. But for the most part, it's like we had to phrase each question very carefully because, again, going back to the idea that this show is supposed to be engineered for non-wrestling fans, we literally had to phrase the questions being like, uh, okay, for someone not familiar with wrestling, how would you describe this? And it caught them off guard you know, because sometimes you'd be talking to Jim Cornette and you'd ask him a question and he'd be like, well, you know, well, that thing was a shoot and it was a work and then he pancaked and went to the back and gigged himself, you know, whatever. It's like that doesn't mean anything to anybody. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. But there were there were definitely like questions, you know, that like were on our hearts that we like wanted to ask that were outside of the episode that like hopefully, you know, if we, we just we wanted to capture them as like historical like documents <laughs> yes. in a way, you know, so that like so, maybe after we're gone, someone will dig up that footage to mm-hmm. like, you know, <laughs> find some information and so hopefully you know, we, we we capture some things that could you know be used for the history books later.
2: Yeah, like for example, n- we have Scott Hall's reaction to Macho Man's rap album oh. which I don't I think people are going to want 30, 20
1: 30 years from now. They're yeah. definitely <laughs> going to want that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so yeah. so how do you how do you uh, cuz you know, I mean a lot of people have tried to do wrestling documentaries. Some of them amazing, fantastic, some of them are, you know, low-budget garbage that, he, I mean, you know, you've seen it all. If you're fans, you know how wide that spectrum runs. How do you go to somebody like a Kevin Von Erick and say, look, uh, I want to do a movie about uh, the most painful things that have ever happened in your family? Or Tony Atlas. Hey, remember when your friend died in a locker room in front of you? I would like to do a movie about it and talk to you about it. Or really, I mean, you have those people for every story that you tell. How do you go to, to them, and go, hey, look, I promise you, we're gonna do it respectfully. We're the guys that you should talk to about this.
2: Well, it's it's not easy. Uh, f- first off, I mean, most of it was a relationship building with each of these people, and kind of earning their trust, and uh, really just kind of being genuine and saying, hey, you know, we want to give you the platform to tell your story, and we don't have an agenda. Like, yeah, yeah we're fans. You know, but we're not like, you know, blinded by that. And we just want to give you that platform. And I think the most, the, like the wildest example of, of, of that is, you know, we have an episode about Gino Hernandez, mm-hmm. which is part of the series, who, who is a wrestler that is a little more obscure. But, you know, he was like a, a, an, an incredible heel in the 80s in Texas. And he uh, unfortunately died under very bizarre, mysterious circumstances. And we were basically just set out to investigate that. And the, the biggest breakthrough we had on the episode was getting to his family, his mother being alive still. She's in her late 70s. And we got to talk to her. And she's never talked to anybody, I think, even outside of her immediate family about what happened. And so for us, it was literally I flew out there to meet with her with no cameras. And I spent a whole entire day with her and their family just going through old photos and just talking about you know uh, her son and everything and just being respectful and genuine and we and we built that layer of trust and then it was like okay then I'm going to come back here in a few weeks and then we'll you know we'll 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 shoot this so sometimes it would go to that extent of just you know really getting to know somebody because mm-hmm. you're telling you know you're telling her story which is about the you know the loss of her son which is you know an incredible tragedy yeah and so you just have to be <clears throat> genuine
3: yeah and 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 also for example like when we went to interview uh kevin von eric in Kauai. i think like at first like he was really guarded and thought like because of like every other documentary that's been done about his family he felt that they just like buried his father fritz mm-hmm. and he thought and when we first started interviewing every interviewing him every question returned back to him defending his father yeah mm-hmm. and we had to take him to a side and just say listen man like we're like huge marks for your father. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we have so much respect for your father. Like you have no idea. And then we showed him actually, we cut a little trailer for the Bruiser Brody episode. Cause we had already shot it then. And he, him and his two sons watched the trailer and Kevin, after seeing it was like, Oh, this is like the thin blue line. And we're like, Oh <laughs> yeah. You feel that documentary." yeah. And then we just like started talking about like documentary films that he loves. And then he like, he yeah, just got it yeah he got it totally and so then when we sat back
2: down he, he was, was totally just like different on yeah and and just really quick to throw on top of that yeah. too uh brody the story of bruiser brody got us so scored so many points with so many people like yeah. we were legitimate if we were brody people you know what i mean like yeah. everyone respects brody so that was the same with brett as well, well i was too. just gonna say yeah. i was just gonna say like brett the first time we talked to brett hart he was like well you know, I've told my story, you know, already, and, you know, I've said everything I wanted to say. And, and then it was like, well, you know, we did this story about Bruiser Brody and we talked to his family, and then immediately he had stories about Brody. And then, and then he was like, okay, let's do it, boys. Yeah. Cause
3: I guess like uh, when he was young coming up in the business, I think maybe when he was like cowboy, Bret Hart, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Stampede era. Yeah. Um, he like a lot of the boys in the locker room didn't have a lot of respect for him, and it was Brody that like put him over to the rest of the boys. Yeah, that they started respecting him, and uh, he never forgot that and has
1: always appreciated that. So, yeah, that might be the reason why we were able to do this episode. <laughs> yeah, the Bruce and Brody thing is so interesting to me because I, I just feel like. For somebody that was only around in the era that he was around in, that really did nothing in the WWF, that didn't, I mean, he wasn't there to do anything outside of, you know, world class was about as close as he got to a national territory, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's just something about him. And it's not even just the way he died. Because I, as a kid, like as a tape trader growing up, Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with Bruiser Brody before I knew the story of how he died. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with that. It was just something about him you know I, my my cat's name was bruiser brody like I, I was yeah i was obsessed with bruiser brody never having been around to see him wrestle live and not knowing until later the story of his death it was just watching those old world-class tapes and and the old matches with abdullah and just seeing how like so crazy 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 far ahead of his time he was And and just the, not only like the, the, the size and the believability, but the, the charisma that this guy had without ever saying anything, it was like, I, I still don't know that that's been matched. Yeah.
2: There's something about him that even like my girlfriend who, you know, she's, 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 she's definitely a wrestling fan, but she didn't know about Bruiser Brody until before this and her just like watching footage of him. Um, and not knowing anything about him. You, there's just something about his presence yeah. that is on a level in which, like you said, is unmatched. And the interesting thing about that is, is for us, the the genesis of this show, like this show was founded on us discovering Brozy, Bro, uh, Bruiser Brody together. Yeah. Of, of literally, like, you know, he wasn't part of our childhood. It was a little bit before our time. But going back and watching these old videos and these old matches and just being like, oh, my God, like yeah. this dude is, like you were saying, is legitimate, Yeah,
3: you know? Yeah, it's just, like, the way he, like, comes into the ring and, like, there's just, like, a swagger about him that's just, like, it's like he just doesn't give a shit, but he's just, (laughs) like, the coolest guy. I don't know. It's, like, even just watching him lace up his boots, it's, like, yeah, I don't know. There's, like, an energy about it that you just... it's so legit, it's like so real.
1: Yeah, And there's been um, so many guys that have tried to mimic Bruiser on so many different levels. I feel like Bruiser Brody was such a layered character that like mm-hmm. you see, like, you know, you can see the Berserker in the early nineties is just <laughs> yeah. doing yep. that version of Bruiser Brody. And throughout, I mean, there've been so many versions of this guy that people are just kind of uh, looking up to. I think when I was, I was tape trading when I was in high school and one of my first real favorite gets that I had was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the cage match between Bruiser and Lex Luger. When Luger goes in, Bruiser is no-selling, and he gives him about five seconds, and all Lex can do is just climb over the cage and run back. Forget it. I'm done. Forget (laughs) it. Yeah,
2: and there's so many amazing stories that we've heard on the road from people about, about his temperament when it came to business. And, uh, like we, we, you know, uh, David Manning, who's in, uh, several of our, um, our episodes, he's the, uh, he was a referee and part booker of world-class championship wrestling. And he always tells this amazing story of when Frank would travel to other places, other territories. And if the promoter didn't, you know, pay him like Frank wanted him to, uh, Frank being Bruiser Brody. He would just basically go out into the match, mm-hmm. and he would get in the middle of the ring, and he would lie down in the middle of the ring with all the fans there and everything, yeah. until the promoter would literally come out and <laughs> bang him in front of everybody. Yeah. Or he would like go back, and
3: he would grab the grab the mop out of the mop bucket, uh-huh. and he would just go up into the stands and just start like splashing all the fans. <laughs>
1: yeah. the it's amazing. <laughs>
2: just wicked.
3: Yeah,
1: Yeah. So in the in this week's episode in the Montreal episode, I thought uh one of my favorite uh, uh, points of view, I guess, in this one was the Earl Hepner point of view. And I know that Earl has talked about it before, but I feel like I don't remember ever seeing it done as kind of as cohesively and as complete as is in this. I mean, I think his additions and and the way he got into the position that he's in. I mean, like the little things like Bret Hart, having him come up to first class, you know, like I thought there's this Bret Hart talks about, and Earl says that this is what happened, that the night before when they're flying into Montreal for the show, Bret's sitting in first class and a stewardess comes back and gives Earl a first class ticket and says, you know, this guy wants you to sit with him up in first class. And there's Bret Hart. And just, just the level, because, you know, for us fans in 1997, even now, really, but in 1997, the idea that there would be uh, a screw job, like a real life screw job, not a storyline screw job, w- w- unfathomable. It hadn't, yeah. it probably, I don't think it had happened in WWE since the Wendy Richter thing in the early 80s. But the idea that Brett was so kind of conscious of the fact that something was going weird and that there was something screwy happening that he, Gave Earl Hepner a first class ticket next to him, just to <laughs> make sure that. that Earl and him were on the same page. Uh, it's pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Maybe Stu told him. To do that. <laughs> yeah, or, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, Earl. Earl was. Uh,
2: there's a great story about Earl. Yeah, mm-hmm. Earl is
3: still haunted by this every single day.
2: Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things, and hopefully it comes through in the episode, but one of the things about it is, like, a lot of people tend to focus on, you know, uh, with this story, specifically, is, you know, the the Brett factor, the Sean factor, and the Vince factor, Mm -hmm. and you kind of forget about Earl a little bit, because... You know, he's the person that actually had to do this and had to wear the blame for so long. I mean, Brett didn't talk to Earl for decades.
1: Earl's the one that pointed at the at the at the timekeeper. He's the one that waved the hand at the bell, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And he's had to endure. I mean, he, he he breaks
2: down in the in the episode, mostly because he lost a friend. Mm-hmm. And the other part is because, um, you know, for so many years and now he's kind of embraced it, but for many years he, he had to endure those, you know, you screwed Brett chants. I mean, even at All yeah. In. I was at All In last year, and he, he was there, and they were chanting that.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: He said he didn't go to Canada for, like, years like later, right? Which is a great segue um, <clears throat> to uh, one of the, the thing that happened, uh, the experience we had with Earl. Yeah. Which was, um, so we have several associate producers that work on the show that help us out, you know, uh, with this. We had, we had an amazing team on the show. And um, Earl... Like booking Earl, so to speak, for this, for this episode, was handled through a colleague of ours, and um, I wasn't. Uh, I, I think we were on the road. We were at the on time. the road, we were on the road or something, and so all the details were sorted through there. And um, Earl, basically, you know, uh, we had set up like an Airbnb to yeah. shoot the interview at, and so it was downtown Richmond because you know he lives in Virginia, and and uh, we show up to this spot. And Earl is scoping out the building. Yeah, he, like, parked his truck, like, down the
3: street. And is, like, kind of, like, looking around. And we're like, hey, like, how's it going? <laughs> and he's, like, really standoffish at first. Yeah. And, like, we bring him in. And he's, like, kind of, like, slowly, like, looking around. And then eventually admits to us that, like. No, it was, like,
2: right before we were rolling, he's like, can I tell you guys something? And we're like, yeah, sh- sure, man. What's what's going on? And he's like, I thought y'all were going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 a hundred percent shoot. This is for yeah. real. And he basically had assumed that because we were sending him to what was I guess a bad neighborhood in Richmond. You know, it was just a warehouse loft. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. Just just to she'd make the interview look good. And he shows up there, and then he's like, "Well, how come the guy that booked the interview is not going to be there?" And these guys are coming from Canada because the show was actually produced out of Toronto. And he's like, these guys are coming from Canada in this warehouse in the middle of downtown Richmond. And he was, like, texting his wife, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And yeah, and And he was going to, like, hire –
3: he was going to bring a friend who was a cop to, like, come and knock on the door in case bullet shots started going through this door. They would hit this cop, I guess, before they would hit a yeah, human shield shot. So, <laughs> he so he thought basically
1: he, his... he thought this was like the scene in Goodfellas at the end yes. when when Robert De Niro is trying to get Karen. to, No, 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 the other store. Yeah, down there. Yeah, yeah that door yeah. right in yeah. there. Yeah,
2: totally. Well, the other thing too is that when when he showed up like two hours earlier for the interview to scope out the whole situation. <laughs> And we're like, what are we gonna do with him? Like, we're not ready. We're not ready. (laughs) And so I remember, like, you and I were arguing, and we're saying, well, why don't we just get some B roll, just just like get some B roll of Earl? Uh, And so we we brought the camera down, and thank God he started. He we're talking about something else because I was literally gonna say yo, Earl, we're just going to go in this alleyway here and shoot you just over here. You know? <laughs> like, I knew it. You know, we, I knew it. <laughs> we, yeah, it could have been like a 911 call. Yeah,
3: know? but he literally left the keys of his truck, like hidden by his truck, and he kept his wallet in the truck. Yeah. And he said like, wow. if they're going to
2: kill me, they're not going to get my truck and wallet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. It was so, so going back to the point of the story, which is, you know, this is very real for him. Yeah. And it's kind of showing that, you know, here's another victim in this story, uh, victim, so to speak, in this story who's had to endure a lot of the consequences of this this. I mean, you know, we all talk about Brett going to WCW didn't do any favors for him. Right. Obviously, you know, just Earl's lived on lived with this on his conscience
1: for for so long. Did you talk to Scott Hall at all about if this is a work (laughs) work and he still believes it's a work? Like, why? What, What was the benefit of doing it?
2: Um, I'm trying to think like specifically why, um, I, I just think most of what he was saying, I mean, he could be working us, you know, we'll never know, but I think most of his argument was just rooted in the fact that, you know, nothing's going to happen on Vince's watch without him knowing and having full control of it. And, Mm. you know, and and then just like, you know, a lot of people look into the conspiracy theories behind the documentary crew being there, which is another story that we have about that. (laughs) (laughs) What's that story? Okay, so this is, okay, so originally we were supposed to do eight episodes for season one, and, you know, in in production things happen, things change, you have to adapt and, you know, make some difficult choices, and we had to actually stop production on two different episodes in order to finish everything, Mm -hmm. which, and one of those episodes, which I've talked about before, uh, is the story of Dino Bravo was Mm. one of the stories working on and we've shot all the interviews it's all that's all there we just haven't done the reenactment portion of it yet i see but anyway we shot it all in montreal because that's where the story takes place and vice uh booked us a sound person you know and they just go through an agency and they book you like a sound guy to show up to you know to yeah. shoot we so don't know who we're getting we until we n- get there no idea and so this guy shows up and we're like hey and i'm like hey man uh i'm evan and you know i just want to let you know what we're doing today we're doing this interview it's like a wrestling story and he's like, "Oh, I've done a wrestling uh, documentary before." And I was like, "Oh, really? Like, you know, what what was that?" And he's like, "Uh, Wrestling with Shadows." <laughs> no <you know> way! <laughs> <whatever."> <laughs> and I was like, "Wait, what? Sorry, what?" Yeah, we couldn't believe it. And then and it, he hadn't even seen it. He hadn't seen it. He had no idea what any of this is. No idea. Wow! And, we, and then we realized he was the sound guy that put the mic on Brett before Brett went in to to
1: talk to Vince. Oh my God yeah
2: and so and so we're just like wait a minute wait a minute
3: like what and so like first we we're like dude you have to go home now and like watch the documentary <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and he did and he came back the next day like
2: totally blown away he was like oh my god I... they, you know he, i think he came back and he was like they screwed brett <laughs> 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 <You> know, like, <laughs> and and so then uh and so then we just put the camera on him and um and, and he, he gets like he has like a line or two in the dock where, yeah. you know, he said like the 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 filmmakers said to him, hey, let's put the mic on Brett, but let's just be very low profile. So they did sort of know that that was something, you know, Brett gets a lot of heat for it. But I mean, look, if I was a filmmaker and I was the guy directing Wrestling with Shadows, I would have put a mic or two on Brett,
1: too. Yeah. Right, right. Man. So, you know, the show should be available on demand at the time that you're hearing this. Uh, Dark Side of the Ring is on Viceland every Wednesday at 9 p.m. And the Montreal episode was this week's episode. So if you don't want, I mean, I don't know what kind of spoilers, but I want to know what was the sort of key, what was the the or or the couple of nuggets of information that you guys got that previously you had not heard or seen anywhere that you realize, like, okay, this is, this is what's going to make this ours.
2: Um, well, I mean, <clears throat> it's hard to talk about without spoiling it. So I guess, if you well, you, yeah, turn it,
1: it off. Turn, you can turn off the podcast it, and yeah,
2: you know, go watch it. It'll be on viceland.com too. You can watch it. Perfect.
1: There, perfect. Episode. Okay.
2: Um, if not on cable when it airs, um, anyway, so, um, I think the moment for us was totally by accident, which was we chose to interview Jim Cornette about this episode, um, basically because Jim Cornette was there and he's insanely entertaining. Yeah. And that was what we decided was like, well, he's going to, he's going to be able to go off on this. And he's also like, you know, such a purist. Yeah. And so he's going to give you that perspective of, you know, Um, you know, what the history is of the business and and people doing what's right for business, that whole kind of vibe. And so we went in to do this interview. And and as we're setting up, he told us, he's like, well, there's something that I've never told anybody before. (laughs) And I was like, really? And he's like, well, I don't, I don't really care what people think of me anymore. And I don't leave the house. So, you know, maybe we should do it here. And he's like, I called Dave Meltzer yesterday and told him I'm going to say this on the show and so he, he he was like you know gearing up that our thing was going to be the the arena that he was going to g- drop this bit of information that's never been out which was, if you've seen the episode now, hopefully you have mm-hmm. yeah he, he came up with essentially the inspiration for the sharpshooter uh, spot in the match where Sean was going to use Bret Hart's own finishing move on him in order so the ref could ring the bell. Uh, and you ha- you you'd have Brett in that in that in that you know compromising position and then you'd be able to you know screw him essentially mm-hmm. and so um and and the fascinating thing for us is he told us that but you know a lot of people like i said have claimed responsibility for things in the wrestling business or in this instance claim responsibility for something they wish they could take back which is kind of funny but in this in this story it was cool because he really if you go to Jim's house it's 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 heaven oh. it's heaven for the three of us mm-hmm. in terms of like just how much stuff is he has like memorabilia collectibles things meticulously organized and there I could spend weeks there it's like a museum it's Amazing. a museum it's yeah. incredible and so it was cool to like see that in the episode which you which you, which you see and then and then you, he gives you a history lesson of of basically where the first montreal screw job happened because there was a montreal a screw job that took place in montreal in the 30s which involved you know one wrestler putting the other wrestler in his own headlock maneuver so the ref could catch him and disqualify him and back then titles changed hands on disqualifications and so it was literally a, a real screw job to get the title onto the other person because back in those days any territory that had the belt, I mean, it meant millions of dollars of revenue. So it was kind of like even more of a shady type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, <clears throat> he told us – he tells a story in the episode where when Vince and uh, – Vince Russo and Jim Cornette are all at, 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 at Vince McMahon's house and they're trying to come up with what's a finish that will be success – or will be something Brett will go for, what can we do, what's a solution – and everybody at that time was sort of saying, Oh, just screw Brett. Like, this is what we would have done in the old days. Like he doesn't want to play ball. You know, let's let's do this. And then Jim was the one that suggested, told the story of this nineteen leave it to Jim to tell this nineteen thirties <laughs> obscure thing that happened where, you know, this guy, this screw job had happened. Or actually it's actually called a double cross, is what it's really called. A screw right. job is actually not the right terminology, according to him. And so the, the, the original double cross was, was then, and he told everybody this story. And then he said, well, what if Sean got Brett in the sharpshooter and then Brett get, get the referee in on it? Yeah, you know, get the referee in on it. And then you know you're, you're, you'd have to put Brett in a situation to expose the business, which he wouldn't do because, you know he comes from this strong background with his father and the lineage. And so, you yeah, know, they never would have thought that Brett would have went to the press, like, after this. <laughs> right. Knowing what they know about just how seriously he takes the business. And, yeah. of course, he did. And then it, it all spiraled out of control and everything. So that, to us, was like,
1: that's amazing. whoa.
2: That's so cool that he decided to share that.
1: Yeah. But didn't then Vince Russo turn around and go like, no, that's not true. I thought of it.
2: <clears throat> yeah. So, <laughs> well, we were interviewing Vince Russo for a different story. And then, and then, you know, he said he wanted to throw down on that. And I was like, well, he was there. Let's ask him. Yeah. you know what happened? And of course, he didn't recall any of that and <laughs> just basically said that he had come up with the sharpshooter spot out of pure frustration. Uh-huh. You know, but he doesn't have the sort of like laborious history lesson and, you know, very detailed cornet motivation <laughs> And so it's it but it's but it is, it's just interesting. it's just, it's not necessarily. Like we didn't put him, we didn't put Vince Russo in the episode because that's, you know, factual or infactual. It's just part of the whole thing. The whole story, you look at it from, you know, bird's eye view is that this is, there is so much mythology behind this crazy thing.
1: How do you guys feel? You know, you worked on these things for years. They finally get out to, to, to the eyes. How do you feel about the criticisms that you've gotten? I think, uh. I think Dave Meltzer has been a little critical of some of it, I think, on Twitter. And I know, you know, I I, I think, yeah, he said something about the Montreal episode specifically, I believe. Um, And obviously, uh, after the Macho Man and Elizabeth episode aired, uh, Hogan (laughs) went out on Twitter and said that, you know, you guys had gotten a bunch of stuff wrong and that he hadn't been. Uh, uh, he he would have straightened you guys out if he had been asked to be a part of it. I believe, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Obviously, I don't have the tweets yeah, yeah, in front yeah, of me. Yeah.
2: And he was asked to be part of it.
1: <laughs> and he turned you down.
2: Yeah, he he, oh. he had declined. Yeah, so oh. and, and and which is which is funny. Yeah. But the um <clears throat> the thing um really is like any of the criticisms or the debate, especially that I think Montreal Screwjob is a subject specifically that people are very passionate about and are very opinionated about. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really fun personally yeah. not to not to you know just sound like that but i think it's fun that you know we, we can take all of the angles that are in the episode and then now we can talk about it and there's something to debate and there's something to you know uh take a you know to to take apart essentially and you know dave Meltzer obviously who we respect a lot you know as the you know the person for 20 x amount of years who's just really 30 maybe who's really been like the one journalist voice in wrestling for so long or like at least one of the first. And, um, I think, you know, his expectation for the show, you know, probably is a more linear laying of the facts, you know, and kind of putting all the information out there, all the dates, all the contract things. I'm just assuming, I don't know for sure what his actual issue is with it. We haven't seen the episode yet. Yeah. We don't even know if he's seen it yet. So, I mean, there's that too. Yeah, Um, I think he's heard from people that have, have warned him that he's not going to like it. And so, see. um And so anyway, you know, we we tried to, in the edit, I remember, in the very first edits we had of the Screwdub episode, we did try and kind of approach it with all of the facts because we got them. You know, we yeah. people talk about them, and we have them. And uh, we put that all together. And then we just found that when we showed people who didn't know anything about wrestling or this story, it just wasn't – it was boring. It just—it yeah. was kind of this thing where it's like, you know, there's not much personality. It's a little sterile, you know, and there's all this information that I don't need to know. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, we only have 44 minutes to try and, like, summarize the JFK assassination story of <laughs> wrestling, you know? Yeah. And so we found out that it's 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 much more interesting to look at this story through all angles and to look at it as something where there's so many different points of view. You don't know what's real and what's fake. And that really speaks to the theme of the whole series, Yeah, you know, and like, yeah, there's moments where we're we're more journalistic and we have to be. But I think there's also moments where, you know, we're being journalistic about how subjective the wrestling industry is. Yeah.
3: And the fun like I for me, one of the most fun things about this business is the blurred lines
1: of between
3: reality and fiction and people
2: shooting on each other. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, guys, I appreciate you guys making the time. Uh, Of course, Evan Hunsey, the producer. Jason Eisner, the director of Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, It airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern over on Viceland on on cable. You can also go to Viceland.com. Right now, I'm looking at the website, and I can see that the Macho Man and Liz episode is available, and the Killing a Bruiser Brody episode is also available. So if you want a taste of what the show is... um, I would check it out. I mean, I think it's cool to have a lot of these stories kind of encapsulated in a 44-minute version for wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans alike to just be able to, you know, kind of throw it on and go like, yeah, th- this is this is the 44-minute version of this extremely complex story. And I think that that relates to pretty much every episode. Um but I think it's super cool that it exists and that it's on Viceland and that it's it's kind of a main more mainstream look at these stories that for so long have been reserved for the super, super, super wrestling fan. So great job, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thank yeah, you so much. I appreciate man. that, yeah.
0: It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling.
1: Yeah, it is State of Wrestling time here on Not Sam Wrestling. You know what we do. Break down the top five stories of the week, according to yours truly, the last professional broadcaster, and try to make some sense of this world of, of, of professional wrestling, of sports entertainment. Let's figure out what's going on here, and let's all do it together. Of course, if you want to see video of the entire State of Wrestling segment every week, if you want to watch it live as I do it every week, the only place you can do that is at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. Sign up, become a Not Sam shill, and you will get all the benefits that all the other shills have been getting for quite some time now. Let's get into it. Huge week, Superstar Shake-Up week. So there's a lot to talk about as it all unfolds. It also seems like uh, with the Superstar Shake-Up, not only do we start looking at uh, who has what going on for them, but who doesn't have what Going on for them. And that's where we go with story number five. And one can only assume a decision made by Luke Harper because he felt like there was not a lot going on for him. And that is Luke Harper, somebody who, interestingly enough, for all these years has really only tweeted out it's insert day of the week. You know what that means for all this time, only to find out that he can talk. Over WrestleMania weekend, leading to it, he found out that all he had was a match at Access, and he said, don't say all I have is a match at Access. I'm going to tear the house down. And anybody that watched uh, Luke Harper versus uh, Dominic Dijakovic over on When Worlds Collide on the WWE Network, they all said the same thing. Those guys tore the house down. They stole Access, that's for sure. Luke Harper was on a mission to have one of the best matches of his career last year at WrestleMania the Bludgeon Brothers stood in the middle of the ring the new Smackdown Tag team champions uh this year, Luke Harper was at access having a match at when Worlds collide and you know that's a that's a it's a he I, I obviously was not terribly satisfied with what had happened. he's been out with an injury for a while but apparently he's been fine since February. And the WWE creative team, whatever you want to call it, he says, had nothing for him. It's the same thing. If you go back and listen to the interview that I did with him here on the podcast, he talks about how the last time he had an injury, the uh, the the stress and the awfulness that was the purgatory of not being back but not being out and how tough that was for him uh, before he found the Bludgeon Brothers. Oh, to have the Bludgeon Brothers taken from him due to injury— Eric Rowan find, finds his spot right around Royal Rumble time. A few weeks after that, Luke Harper is ready to compete again. But guess what? Bludgeon Brothers aren't coming back. Eric Rowan has a spot with Daniel Bryan. What are we going to do with Luke Harper? I don't know. He appears to be in the best shape of his life. He's moving around like a million bucks. What are we going to do with him? There's not much to do. So not only does Luke Harper break from tradition of not speaking by putting out a like a, a picture of a note On Twitter, I wonder if when Jack on Twitter said uh, that there can only be however many, 200 characters, whatever the character limit is on Twitter, I wonder if he realized how many people would just be screenshotting the Notes app and using as many characters as they damn well pleased. Uh, Because that's what Luke Harper did to hype up the fact that he was taking his Access match for when Worlds Collide at WrestleMania weekend very, very seriously. And that he was going to tear the house down. He delivered on that promise... Only to go forward, post another screenshot of another note this week that said he had asked for his WWE release. There's no um, confirmation that WWE has granted that release, but just the fact that he's asking for his release puts him with a club of people um, that also, you know, not uh, not far away, you know, fairly recently asked and received their releases. I'm talking about uh, um, Ty Dillinger. You know, I don't think TJ Perkins asked for his release, but he was given his release. You know, there was a grouping of people um, that happened not too long ago. And it seems like uh, Luke Harper may be added to that. At the same time, Alexander Wolfe is on Twitter and he's tweeting about the dissolution of Sanity. Eric Young was, of course, drafted to Monday Night Raw without the other members of Sanity. Killian Dane not on the list. Uh, uh, and Alexander Wolfe, not on the list. So, you know, one, I would have thought that they would try to form some tag team between Killian Dane and Alexander Wolfe and have them stay on SmackDown, but the way Alexander Wolfe was tweeting, it was not like he was saying goodbye to Eric Young, who's heading to Raw, but it was almost like he was leaving. Then, of course... You have the Sasha Banks situation, which is just as weird as it gets. She hasn't been on TV, I don't think, since WrestleMania. I don't think she was on the Raw after WrestleMania, unless I'm wrong. But, you know, rumors abound. We talked about the rumors last week about her not being uh, satisfied at WWE. Bayley was back on Raw this week without Sasha Banks. Bayley went over to SmackDown this week without Sasha Banks. There was reference, though, to Sasha Banks, not only from Corey Graves on commentary, when I believe he said something about Sasha Banks uh, losing her ball and quitting the game, Uh, but Bailey not being able to get Sasha Banks on the phone on TV. That would lead me to believe that even if there isn't some grand storyline being told, that the WWE... Look, conventional wisdom would tell you that the WWE is aware of Sasha Banks' situation and they have a plan for this, but at the same time, Unconventional times call for unconventional means. Dean Ambrose, he it leaked, I guess. it was on you know, on the on the internet months ago that he was going to be leaving after WrestleMania. and WWE acknowledged it. not only acknowledged it, but acknowledged it through storylines to the point where coming up on Sunday on the WWE network, they have the last ride of the shield together. Um, in some kind of WWE Network special. So, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going on with Sasha Banks? If this is some kind of grand uh, story arc that is going to be unfolding before our eyes, or if the WWE is simply acknowledging the reality of what's happening and moving with it and going with it and and being fluid as the WWE tends to be. I don't know, but I'm interested in seeing. I'm going to be following Alexander Wolfe and Sasha Banks closely, and... You know, I'm Luke Harper. If granted his release, and personally, I think if a person asks for their release, why not give it to them? Um, but you know, I think that look, being outside the WWE is not an easy thing. You know, WWE makes it easy to make a living, easier anyway than than being on the independents. You know, Kurt Hawkins was on the podcast and he talked about that. Like, look. He did make a great living on the Independence when he was out of the WWE, but it was really, really difficult. It was constant work and constant work and constant work. Luke Harper is a tremendous, tremendous athlete. He's a tremendous sports entertainer, and he's only gotten better since he came to WWE. Do I think he has the ability to be successful? Of course I do. You know, wherever he is, I think he has the ability to be successful. I'm anxious in seeing what he makes out of his future, the way I'm anxious in seeing what anybody makes out of their future. I think it'll be very, very interesting. Let's go to story number four. Speaking of people's future, uh, the w- familiar faces get drafted or or shaken up to Monday Night Raw. The NXT Tag Team Champions make the move to Monday Night Raw. You're sitting there and you're going, Sam, you mean the War Raiders? No, of course I don't mean the War Raiders. I'm talking about Eric and Ivar, the Viking experience. I don't remember the last time a name change got the kind of attention that the Viking experience has gotten. Because man, man, are people reacting to this negatively. I haven't seen, you know, the, the only people that are being not negative about it are people saying like, stop complaining about it nobody nobody that I've seen is sitting there going like oh this is a great name change now I come from this school of thought still you know I I I've, I fall in the what's in a name category for the most part you know I think look are eric and Ivar actually Vikings no they're not actually Vikings however they live like Vikings and when you get in the ring with them, it feels like you're in the ring with Vikings. The experience is much like one that you would get from a Viking. Ergo, you are being shown the Viking experience. I love watching people get all uh, twisted up about it. Um, you know, I I think that they're a great team. And, and clearly, you know, They won an eight-man tag involving the Raw Tag Team Champions. So it's not like they were brought from NXT, renamed the Viking Experience, because uh, the WWE plans on uh, making them look like fools. For whatever reason, the Viking Experience is now the Viking Experience. You know, do I think it's the greatest name for a tag team in the world? No. Do I think that... uh, eric and ivar i almost called them different names do i think that eric and ivar are awesome enough that it's not really gonna matter yeah you know i mean i think at the end of the day whatever they're called is going to catch on oh that's eric and ivar the viking experience i think after you say it a few times it'll just be what you call them you know what i mean like you'll always kind of know like yeah Yeah, their name before was really a little... It was was edgier, shall we say. But realistically, you're going to sit there and you're going to go, that's just what their name is. And you're going to call them that, you know? The same way Andrade, Cesaro, uh, all these guys that lost either their first or last names, nobody calls them. Nobody calls them by their first or last names. Honestly, when Brian Danielson became Daniel Bryan, Everybody was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How is that going to catch on? And Brian Danielson has become a foreign name to most people. So, you know, they're going to be on Raw. They're going to do great. They're going to win their matches. Um, And I think eventually we'll just all get used to it. You know, it's part of the game. It's part of the game. Uh, Story number three, The Rock is on the cover of Time magazine. That's a big deal. You know, there's not that many magazines left that it's a big deal to be on the cover of. But I would say Time Magazine is one of them, especially when the subject of the article is the 100 most influential people. I'm sure that has a lot to do with social media, but The Rock is one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. Huge. I think everything The Rock does is huge for uh, WWE, is huge for pro wrestling. I mean, you know, he continues to make these massive mainstream strides. And everything he does allows, I believe, wrestlers to be taken more seriously. And I also think it makes it so that when somebody in this world of sports entertainment wants to go beyond the squared circle, it's not this alien concept. It's not this crazy idea anymore. Because it ha- now it's been done. It's very very difficult. It's only been done to this level once, but it has been done. Even Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan was so big in the world of uh, sports entertainment that he became a household name. That just just his his image became iconic. Ah, iconic. And I don't mean you know iconic with two eyes. That's dumb. But I mean iconic, as in he is and was an icon. But he never achieved the success outside of the squared circle that he achieved inside of the squared circle. The Rock, on the other hand, became one of the biggest WWE superstars of all time, then left the ring and became an even bigger superstar in the mainstream world. I think that's good for everybody involved. I think that's good for fans. And on one level or another, He still embraces his past as a WWE superstar and will always pop up, you know, even in the Fighting With My Family movie. You know, maybe we didn't see The Rock at WrestleMania, but anybody that went to see Fighting With My Family saw The Rock cutting a promo, calling people jabronis, you know, being The Rock again. So the fact that he is not in a place in his career where he's uh, trying to push his past behind him, where he's trying to hide the fact that this is where he came from, he actually embraces all parts of his journey And I think that that's really, really good for all of us as fans. Uh, So story number two leads me into the Superstar shakeup, but that'll be story number one. Story number two um, has to do with SmackDown and the way SmackDown ended. Story number two has to do with the fact that the big dog, Roman Reigns, is on SmackDown. He gave Vince McMahon that Superman punch. Now, if you look at it, My perspective is, I'm sitting there, you know, Kofi Kingston, Roman Reigns sent out a tweet about SmackDown being his yard, and Kofi Kingston sent out a tweet with emojis going, hmm, I don't know about that. Whoa, why don't you you take it easy right there? Kofi Kingston has had the WWE Championship for two weeks, and already Roman Reigns has showed up to kind of take the reins, no pun intended, on... uh, Although, did you hear... I, I believe that Elias said Reigns in his promo. He is now in his promos. He's giving a little head nod to whoever's about to jump him, which I think is great. I love it. Um I thought Elias was great. I love Vince McMahon coming out and saying the big signing is Elias. I thought that was great because knowing Elias, there is that thing where of course we think it's going to be Roman, but we never know. It could be just be Elias, you know. It wouldn't have been that outside of the box for the Elias character. Um but Look, I think Kofi's got an uphill battle. One of the reasons when I did my superstar shakeup last week on the show, some people said that clearly I had a bias for Raw because I put all the big stars on Monday Night Raw. And that's not true. If you go back and listen to it, I put a lot of the big good guys on Monday Night Raw and I moved a lot of the big bad guys to SmackDown. And my thinking in doing that was, let Kofi Kingston have that spotlight. Because if you start moving big good guys from Raw over to SmackDown, it's going to be a lot tougher for Kofi Kingston to maintain maintain his spot as the number one person, the title holder on that brand. Now, I don't think that Roman Reigns and Kofi will be anywhere near, near each other right away. Because... I don't think that the WWE would want to do away with the goodwill that Roman Reigns has built up. And I think that Roman Reigns coming in, swooping in, and taking Kofi Kingston's WWE Championship uh, would do just that. I think the best thing they can do with Roman Reigns is put him in a high-profile rivalry right away, but far away from the WWE Championship. Do I think that Roman Reigns will be the WWE Champion? Yeah. You know, I think that that is where this is heading. But I don't think he should take it off of Kofi Kingston. I think maybe maybe Kofi will end up losing it around... I would. Here's what I would do. I would let Kofi hold on to it until about SummerSlam. Have a bad guy take it from Kofi Kingston at SummerSlam. And then just in time for uh, Fox to take over SmackDown duties in October, that's when Roman can be crowned the WWE Champion. I mean realistically, the only reason that Roman Reigns is on that brand is to be champion. Now, you know, I I don't know. It depends on what you want to do with Lars Sullivan because Lars Sullivan is on SmackDown. So, you know, one method you could do is to put Lars Sullivan and Roman Reigns together right now. However, that would mean the first rivalry that Lars Sullivan has would clearly be losing to Roman Reigns. What I would consider... I think a possibility would be to build Lars up until SummerSlam, have Lars versus Kofi at SummerSlam, which almost had, well, not quite. I'm not even going to, I was going to compare, because it has more to do with comparing Lars Sullivan to Brock Lesnar. But, you know, when when Brock Lesnar and The Rock had their SummerSlam match for the WWE Championship, I don't think people thought that Brock was going to win, and he did. I like the idea of Lars Sullivan going to SummerSlam to challenge Kofi Kingston for the WWE Championship and Lars Sullivan actually winning the WWE Championship. And then once we get to October, we start SmackDown on Fox with Roman Reigns chasing Lars Sullivan for the WWE Championship. And either you, you know, take the title off Lars Sullivan right away in October or you build that story starting in October and then over the course of a few months get it back on Roman Reigns um but I think that is where things are headed now you know the thing about Kofi Kingston is regardless of where this title reign lead goes nobody will ever be able to take away his Wrestlemania moment or the story that led to WrestleMania. That is officially cemented in the books. He could lose the WWE Championship tonight at a house show. And it would not take away anything that happened at WrestleMania. I mean, you go back and, and, and look at these title reigns. You go back and look at, look at WrestleMania 30. When Daniel Bryan won the WWE Championship. It was the culmination of this yes movement that was never supposed to happen. He ended up having to vacate the title really quickly after that. But guess what? Nobody really thinks about that. Look at Rey Mysterio going to WrestleMania and winning the WWE Championship or the World Heavyweight Championship, I believe. That was one of those moments that was never supposed to happen. And it did. And there's just no way you can ever take that away from him. Now, the title reign itself, not as memorable. But the moment lives forever, you know? And, and, And you can point to a lot of moments like that. And I think Kofi has that moment. You know, I think having a nice run for Kofi leading into the summer is just what the doctor ordered. And I, I don't think that Kofi will ever sort of go back down. I think Kofi will from now and forever be in that sort of main event spot. You know, I think that Kofi will forever be in that conversation of WWE champion. But I'm just trying to think realistically here. Let's get to... Uh, and I mean, you know, yeah, let's get to the story. And I don't think either... We'll see. It remains to be seen. Some people are worried that Roman Reigns is going to be the spotlight of SmackDown while Kofi Kingston, WWE champion, is not. I think that that would be a grave mistake on the part of WWE. I think that as long as Kofi Kingston is WWE champion, he should be treated as the top guy. I think there should be a little resistance. I think that Roman Reigns should have a little bit of a mountain to climb. I think that it would make Roman Reigns a little bit more relatable, and I think that realistically, regardless of why he was gone, he's gone for 6 months. He does have some building that he needs to do. So I think I think 6 months, well what what is it? I think I think building Roman through the summer, keeping him away from the WWE championship picture and and having a nice build going up for him headed towards the WWE title in the fall is the best thing that you can do for Roman Reigns. You know, I mean, I think eventually he has to be the champion. That's just the position that he's in. Um, But we'll see. We'll see. In the meantime, I think Kofi should just be kicking ass. And just, you know, and, and here's the thing about Kofi Kingston. We say all this now, right? We say all this now that, okay, let's think that around the summer, Kofi maybe loses the WWE championship to somebody like Lars Sullivan, right? We think that now. However... Kofi was never supposed to win the WWE Championship at WrestleMania. Kofi wasn't in this conversation two months before WrestleMania. So who knows, right? This is the way we look at things now. But if Kofi-mania continues to run past WrestleMania and through the summer, if there is simply, if Kofi becomes, I'm sorry, not becomes, but if Kofi remains undeniable, then what can we do but leave Kofi in the position that he's in? It could get very, very interesting. It could get very, very interesting, but that means going to arenas, and it doesn't mean booing Roman Reigns, right? If you don't want Roman Reigns to be champion, you don't boo Roman Reigns because that's still, he still gets the loudest reaction of the night. He still is the biggest superstar who gets the loudest reaction. You should cheer the person that you want to be champion. If you want Kofi Kingston, To remain WWE champion, you need to go to arenas and cheer your butt off for Kofi Kingston. That's the voice that needs to be heard. Not the voice of disapproval for one superstar, but the voice of approval for a superstar. The voice of approval for Kofi Kingston is so much more valuable than any voice of disapproval for Roman Reigns that it's not even a contest. So go out there. If you want Kofi to be champion, cheer for Kofi. Story number one is the results of the Superstar shakeup. Of course, as we mentioned, we've got Roman Reigns and Lars Sullivan both on SmackDown. and We thought Lars Sullivan was going to be on Raw. He showed up on Raw, but then he showed up on SmackDown, and the announcement was official. Lars Sullivan coming to SmackDown. Big, big. The Intercontinental Champion Finn Balor is on SmackDown. Now, I said that one of my picks was putting Samoa Joe on Raw, And leaving Finn Balor on Raw too. So both titles would be on Raw. And then you'd have to figure it out. It appears that instead. They did that with Finn Balor in reverse. And they put Finn Balor on SmackDown. But did not move Samoa Joe. As of right now. Uh, Elias of course we saw. At the close of SmackDown. Moving over to SmackDown. Um, I don't know how that's going to. Pan out. It's a big name for SmackDown for sure. Um, but you know, it's just become such a fixture on Raw to have that Elias segment that SmackDown being only you know a third shorter than Raw. Are the Elias segments gonna be the same? Are they gonna be just as long? Are they gonna be just as frequent? Who knows? Uh Ember Moon, Bailey, and Kide Sane all go over to SmackDown, along with Liv Morgan and Mickey James. That's Bailey, Ember Moon, Kide Sane. Liv Morgan, Mickey James. Five women all going over to SmackDown. That's a lot of women. Now, um, the Iconics I- 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 apparently still say- staying on SmackDown too, but, you know, they're the women's tag team champions, which means they'll be going from show to show if need be, right? I think that the reason so many women have been moved to SmackDown is because that's where that tag division is going to get built. And we saw it, you know. Bailey comes on, booed by the way, which shocked me, Montreal. You're bad people. Booing Bailey. How dare you? Bailey comes out, um, and she says that she's on SmackDown as a singles competitor and proceeds to have a tag match, uh, with Ember Moon as her tag partner. Um, you know, I I I feel like that's must be why so many women were moved over to SmackDown, because the tag division is going to get built over there with teams like, you know, Oscar and Kaiji Sane getting put together. I don't know why you wouldn't just move IO Shirai over to Smackdown as well, unless IO Shirai is going to have some more time in NXT and be a, a singles breakout. Um but yeah, and I I guess you know, I, I if singles victories are not in the cards for Oscar right now, I guess becoming a tag team champion would be good too. But I would love to see Asuka back being a dominant singles champion. Uh, Liv Morgan, of course, uh, all over social media, very emotional about leaving the Riot Squad. Uh, uh, Ruby Riot and Sarah Logan and Liv Morgan all came over together, kind of a mishmash of uh, NXT stars that they packed into one um, faction. And it worked, man. The Riot Squad really worked for all three of those people. Now, uh, I, I would think that Sarah Logan will somehow be packed in with the Viking experience because she also appears to be living through that experience herself. So I wouldn't think that Ruby Riott and Sarah Logan stay a team over on Raw. I would think that Ruby Riot goes singles and Sarah Logan goes singles, but is also part, you know, the, the connection between her and the experience of the Vikings is acknowledged. Um, who else do we have? You know, 205 Live, Lars Sullivan, we already mentioned. 205 Live is going to suffer. We've got Buddy Murphy and Cedric Alexander both leaving 205 Live. Buddy Murphy comes to SmackDown. Um, I like seeing, you know, I think it's it's going to be tough for 205 Live. They're going to need some signings, unless the show is going away, I don't know. But it's always good to see guys from 205 Live get the opportunity to shine on the main roster. You know, they, they always have amazing matches on these pay-per-view pre-shows. They always have good matches on 205 Live. So I think Mustafa Ali probably kicked open a lot of doors. As successful as he's been on the main roster, I think that that's what kind of gave the head nod to say, okay, let's see if these 205 guys have what it takes. And if anybody does, I think Buddy Murphy does. I'm I'm very interested to see what Buddy Murphy does as a single star on the main roster Bobby Roode and Chad Gable have been broken up as Chad Gable is coming back to SmackDown. Um, And, you know, I I think Chad Gable, I would probably say that Chad Gable should probably go back together with Shelton Benjamin because his whole identity was based around Bobby Roode over on SmackDown. I mean, over on Raw. Unless you're going to completely repackage Chad Gable, which could work too. Um... I think you're going to need a new partner for him where we can go back to kind of embracing the collegiate-style wrestling of Chad Gable. Apollo Crews coming over to SmackDown, which I think is a good move. You know, he could have uh, a little bit more opportunity to step out from the pack. And then Heavy Machinery is officially a SmackDown tag team. I think wherever Heavy Machinery goes is good news. I'm a big Heavy Machinery fan, and I think they've done really, really good um, so far on the main roster. Um, the SmackDown Tag Division, who are the uh, the tag champions right now are the Hardy Boys. I don't know who you cheer for between the Hardys and Heavy Machinery, but I'm, I'm there for it. Over on Raw, see, Raw got a ton of male superstars. Raw got a ton of big male superstars, which I predicted would probably happen. AJ Styles goes over to Raw. I think the best possible move for AJ Styles. There was nothing left for him to do on SmackDown. He was stagnating beyond belief. Had a good match with Randy Orton at WrestleMania. Head over to Raw. Do your thing. The Miz moves over to Raw. Uh, It seems, though, that the Shane McMahon rivalry is going to continue over on Raw. So, you know, I guess it's just in front of a different set of eyes. Uh, but it does seem like every superstar shakeup, they just trade Miz back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Uh, I would love to see him, by the way, at some point go back to being a villain and chasing Seth Rollins for the Universal title. I think, you know, Miz is way overdue for a WWE or Universal title run, or at least a chase for it. Um, and I hope that that happens. Ricochet and Alistair Black go to Raw, which I think is a great move. Eric and Ivar, the aforementioned Viking experience, are on Raw. Regardless of what you want to call him, good for them. Andrade and Zelina Vega are on Raw. I think Andrade fits right in with that AJ Styles uh, conversation. He needs he needed to be freshened up. And I'm glad that he's being freshened up uh, on Raw. However, Rey Mysterio is also going to Raw. Honestly, if you told me next week on Raw, for the next 10 weeks on Raw, we're going to see Rey Mysterio versus Andrade, I'd be fine with it. I'd be fine. Let them just go at each other forever, and I'd be absolutely fine with it. But Rey Mysterio, also on Raw. Big move, the Usos are on Raw. I can't believe there's gonna be a television show where the Usos are on it, and we're sitting there looking at Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins and calling them tag team champions. That has to be short-lived. I think the Usos bring up the tag division, wherever they go. The tag division has to come up to the Usos level. And I think that that's what's going to happen on Monday Night Raw. We saw Naomi go over to Raw. She teamed with Bailey. However, Bailey's gone, but Naomi is on Raw. I mean, I guess EC3 is on Raw. He got thrown through the stage uh, this week. So, you know, who knows what his role is going to be on Raw. I would love to know what he did to get under whoever's skin because clearly. EC3 is not a favorite anywhere. Uh, Lacey Evans is a raw superstar, uh, which, by the way, I loved that they were doing exactly what I hoped that they were doing. What I talked about last week, in that Becky Lynch is not a unified champion; she is a champion on each show, which means she will be on each show. And over on SmackDown, you have people like Ember Moon saying they want the SmackDown Women's Tag, uh, the SmackDown Women's Championship. And over on Raw, you have Lacey Evans saying she wants the Raw Women's Championship. Every pay-per-view, Becky defends one of the titles, but every show, you've got different people going for different titles. I think that the in order to cash in on Becky Two Belts being Becky Two Belts, she has to defend them separately. Otherwise, it's just two belts representing one title, which, who cares? Uh, and then Eric Young, as we talked about earlier in State of Wrestling over on Raw, I don't know what Eric Young does without Sanity. We haven't seen Eric Young really in WWE without sanity, uh, including NXT. So, you know, I, I don't I don't know what he does over there. And 205 lives, Cedric Alexander over to Raw. So things are shaking up, and you know, there were I, I think that now WrestleMania is over. The superstar shakeup has happened. Now it comes time to really sink our teeth into stories, into the storylines behind everything that's going on. Let's find some things for all these people to do on these shows, and I think we'll be in good shape. That's what I think about the Superstar Shake-Up. Thank you for once again being a part of Not Sam Wrestling. We will see you right here again next week. Goodbye, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening. Follow at Not Sam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Review and subscribe. This has been Not Not Sam Wrestling. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters.